thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Mira Senthi Lingam. And with me, Ben Valsler. This is a special show recorded in South Africa as we've been in Grahamstown for SciFest Africa, and we're now at the MTN Science Centre in Cape Town. We're bringing you the highlights of the festival, along with a bit about what we've been up to. Chris, Dave and I have been on stage all week with a show called Chris Packet Fireworks, using bright lights and loud bangs to wow the audience with the wonders of science. While I've been out and about meeting the other speakers at the festival, and taking the opportunity to travel around Grahamstown to meet the local wildlife. Coming up, we hear about a retirement home for mistreated lions, and the story of the coelacanth a living fossil fish first found alive here in South Africa. And we'll find out what the audience thought of our stage performance, the rise of drug-resistant TB, and Dave and I have an explosive kitchen science. That's all on the way. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This is The Naked Scientist with a very special show from South Africa. Africa conjures images of wide open plains, huge skies, majestic lions, giraffes, zebras and elephants. So Mira took the opportunity to see the wild side of Africa. I'm at the Shamwari Game Reserve in Port Elizabeth in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. Now, Shamwari is one of the largest private reserves in the country, hosting the big five animals, so lions, leopards, rhinos, buffaloes and elephants. It's a beautiful day here today, and I'm at Longley Manor, one of the many lodges that you can stay in here. And I'm here with John O'Brien, the group ecologist here for Shamwari. So I can see just a vast expanse of land from here. How big is Shamwari? Shamori is a total of 25,000 hectares, so it's a substantial piece of land. And, um, you know, majority of it is natural vegetation, but it is historically old agricultural lands that we've had to restore. Now, you're quite lucky, though, in the fact that you have a written record of the animals that used to be here. There's a place on Shamori which crosses the Bushman's River. The Bushman's River runs for about 29 kilometers through the reserve, and it was the only place that you could cross the river historically by ox wagon. And so as, as a result, all your early hunters, explorers used to cross there and actually camp on the banks of the Bushman's River right on the property. And they made reference to all the animals they saw or shot or whatever it may have been in the early days. And um, somebody has actually gotten together and compiled all those notes in, into a book. And so from one book, we can determine what was historically in the area. What is involved in managing a place like this? I think in essence, it's, we, long, we want to be sustainable on the long term on three fronts, Okay. First of all, ecologically. So in other words, Shamori has got to be in better condition 102 years down the line than it is now. Second of all, we want to be sustainable financially because we are a private game reserve. We don't get subsidies. And then the third aspect is we need to be sustainable socially. Now, when I say socially, I don't just mean for the people in the area. I'm talking about South Africa. Anybody who owns land in South Africa must make, must make sure that it has a positive contribution to the economy and the social issues of the country. 
Now, as well as making the reserve sustainable in terms of the people coming here and things like that, the conservation and the ecology side is obviously very important because you have to obviously control the plants here to, in order to provide the food for the herbivores and then you also need to control the predators having their prey. What are the techniques and methods you use to monitor this? That is probably the most important thing is, is, is the balance, okay? Well, the, the most important monitoring uh, concept we have is the vegetation monitoring. In essence, that is what controls everything. Um, with no vegetation, you've got no herbivores and you've got no uh, predators either. In this area, some of the vegetation is very sensitive and if ruined or degraded completely, can it take anything from three to 500 years to regenerate itself? So we have a, a vegetation monitoring system. We have a predator monitoring system where we monitor the, the impact on the predators on the prey. And then we've got various uh, environmental monitoring systems. We do water monitoring. In essence, we do annual game counts and just making sure that the system is, is functional. What do you actually do to monitor? With the vegetation monitoring, for example, we um, have 91 fixed point sites on the reserve where we have a statistical scientific way of determining change in the vegetation as well as fixed point photography. We do that annually and then try and assess the changes. Is it positive, negative? If it is negative, what is causing it? And then try to rectify it. From a predator point of view, we have a daily team that actually monitors the predators and records all the kills. From a, from a, a human impact point of view, we like to do a lot of work in terms of looking at the impact of lodges, etc., on in water quality. So we're permanently doing water tests and, and, and carbon footprint tests, those sort of things. Okay, so now we're going to go out and have a look at some of the key plants and vegetations here and the herbivores that then feed on them. Now it's mid-morning, so it's not a very good time to see predators in action, really, is it? Certainly not in action. You know, they will be out there somewhere, but, you know, the chances are they could be resting in the river and thicket uh, in the shade, so maybe not necessarily viewable, but also animals have to be somewhere. I know elephants are too far from here. So let's go and have a look. We're just by a group of elephants now. What are these elephants up to at the moment? There's a group of them, and I think they're mothers because there's lots of baby ones around. Yeah, this is a nice little herd. Um, you always find that elephants are always um, led by the matriarch, the adult and wisest of the females. They're just slowly grazing as they go through this open area, but they're making their way to the river. It's um, approaching midday, it's getting warm, so they're going to go and bathe in the river soon. Now, when it comes to controlling the numbers of elephants, then what are the types of things you need to think about here at Shamwari? I think elephants are probably the most difficult. You can look at contraception. Um, they even do vasectomies in males these days. I think one of the biggest problems is that they have the potential to be the most destructive animals next to man. You know, we monitor very carefully the impact they're having on the environment on Shamwari. We don't have an issue. It's, 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 everything's going according to plan, and we're happy. The one little thing, though, is that um, they love a specific tree, the cabbage tree. It's a nice soft tree. It's a tree that they specifically seek out because they love it so much. But you often find that the cabbage tree will be in the middle of a big bush clump and they'll destroy the whole bush clump just to get that one cabbage tree. But in essence, their impact is fairly negative. I mean, fairly minimal rather. All right, well, we're off to another part of the reserve now. Yeah, let's just go and see what's around. Okay, somewhere very nearby here is a cheetah on a, um, on a kudu kill and it's underneath a guari tree so all we need to do is find the guari tree and there we go you see over the side it's actually feeding oh my god yeah oh, uh oh it spotted us does that matter oh no 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 they're very relaxed it's feeding so it's got other things on its mind and cheetah aren't uh, 
animals that are dangerous or anything to humans. So we've pulled up alongside this tree and I can just see, I can see the cheetah's body and its head and it, oh, and its tail's wagging now. And it is just quite literally having a feast down there, munching away. Oh, well, basically it's right at a pen, a watering hole. So it was probably hanging around here. The kudu came down to drink and it killed the kudu. And the first thing they'll do is they'll drag it under a tree somewhere. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. One, it's hot and but the other thing is they hide it from other scavengers or even other predators like lion. They'll probably feed on that for the whole day. So it, uh, do they mainly feed on kudus or many other things too? Young kudu are quite, high, quite a high percentage of their diet. But no, they feed on a, on a variety of antelope and uh, all the way from uh, diker all the way through to adult kudu. Okay, it's just put its head up now and it's just got a mouth full of blood. Yeah, you can see the mouth full of blood there. What, what uh, cheetah can do is that they can actually feed on antelope that never, ever have to drink, ever, because they get enough moisture from the plants, okay? The cheetah can actually, through the blood, get all the moisture it needs. So it can go through a whole cycle of, of, of not having to drink water. But obviously with water here, they do drink. Um, but they always start at the, the succulent parts around the, uh, the rump, and that's where they get the most moisture from. And that's why the face is so red at the moment. Now, how, how are the cheetah populations here? Are they quite easy to control? The cheetah are up and down. You know, the, the one thing is cheetah is vulnerable to lion. The population is, is actually quite stable. It's, quite, it's working very nicely. There's uh, some youngsters around at the moment. So, yeah, it's working well. Okay, well, I think let's leave it to finish off its lunch, I guess. He's having a nice quiet feed, so we'll leave him to it. Well, we've left the vehicle now and walked up into a higher part of the park in the southwest corner. One thing I've noticed, John, is that the land around here is, is quite dry at the moment. We've been having quite a difficult time of it of late with rain. We've been having rain, but no follow-ups and in between. And it's a bit of a problem. Um, we're quite concerned. The river is very, very low. We had a rain that saved us about three, four months ago because we were really dry. But if we don't get a bit of follow-up now, we, we are concerned, yes. Well, you've brought me to a particular plant here which seems to be very important when conditions are as dry as they are now. Very much so. This, this area in here and this vegetation type is what's known as the transitional subtropical thicket. Um, and one of the key characteristic species you're getting here is a speckworm, which means the bacon bush or fat bush. It's a succulent, and why it's, it's so important is that um, although it's not really utilized that much by animals during the good times, it contains a lot of water and during droughts, it's this plant that actually saves the day, and the animals really, really love it. Yeah, so you've got a leaf here in your hand, and you're, you're breaking it apart, and you're right, it, it is filled with quite a lot of water. Not only is it filled with water, it's, it's, it's filled with a lot of nutrients, and um, you can actually use this in, in stews yourself, you know, you try one, it's actually quite nice. It leaves a bit of hair in your teeth, but um, we munch on it every now and then ourselves, just when we're on a hot day. In fact, this subtropical thicket is probably the best you can get in the world for elephant and black rhino. Well, as we walk back to the car, if you have a look, you can see there's uh, some hyena dung. You can see the white dung there. It's, it's, it's white like that because it's, it's calcium. They eat the bones and, and they, they fill the scavenger roll. Um, as you walk, you can see a whole variety of antelope spur, warthog spur. Spur is, is basically tracks. And even here, here you can see a, a lion track. It's been slightly rained on, so it would have been from probably yesterday morning. As well, you can just see these small amounts of things just to figure out the movements of the animals. 
Yeah, well, here you've got a, uh, a millipede that you can see has walked over there with the hundreds of little legs. But it's a nice, when you, whenever you go around, you, you, you're not only looking for animals, you're looking, also looking for what animals have been here. And that gives you a good indication of what's where, what's what, and what's happening on the property. Now, an important issue when it comes to um, game reserves and things like that is, is the fact that the animals are contained. You know, the land is fenced off. Does this affect their natural mi- migration patterns that they would have had otherwise? I think from a historical point of view, but, you know, times have changed. Africa's changed. Certain movements have been restricted. Um, you do get many migrations on a much, much smaller scale. But even in areas like Central and East Africa where animals do still migrate, you do find you end up with human-animal conflicts. And that is starting to become a big issue up there. And Mozambique is, is sitting with the same problems at the moment. Where you get self-sustaining populations of people in terms of small maize fields and and that sort of thing you're going to have conflict with elephant where you have a partialism with cattle you're going to have problems with predators you know so you are finding that the the animals are restricting themselves naturally to the protected areas the other thing to think remember about migration is sometimes migration specifically with elephants would have been over vast distances i mean they used to migrate from from where we are now all the way down the garden route towards uh, mossel bay inland through the Karoo. you know so we're talking about several hundreds of kilometers put that in today's uh, society you know They'll be taking a ride through some of your major towns in, 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 in South Africa, you know. So obviously things have changed. Westernization has taken place. Development is there. And, um, you know, we've got to adapt our, our conservation methods to suit everybody, including the animals. John O'Brien at Shamwari explaining the changing role of game reserves in South Africa. While I was there, I also took the opportunity to meet Glenn Vina to find out how the Born Free Foundation rescues and rehomes animals from captivity. We rescue wild animals that are kept in inhumane conditions all around the world and we try to give them a better quality of life for a few years before they die. I like to describe this uh, sanctuary as a retirement home. We have rescued lions and leopards here and it's cats that were rescued from rundown zoos, circuses, nightclubs and sadly we cannot rehabilitate them and send them back into the wild. Um, Some of them lost their canine teeth, some of them the claws have been removed Some of them, because they were not fed properly, their bone structure didn't develop properly due to lack of exercise and uh, not getting the correct food. So if they're going to live here, though, they're going to need a a lot of land in order to be, you know, comfortable and happy because they've been rescued from bad conditions. So how big is the sanctuary here and how much land do they have? Um, The enclosures here uh, for our rescued cats each, um, you're looking at about 1.5 hectares. And uh, we left the camps totally natural. So how do you actually look after the animals once they're here? So they have this, they have 1.5 hectares of land to kind of live on. But what about their diets? We feed them twice a week. We feed them with food that we get from our local farmers. Unfortunately, they can't hunt for themselves uh, because they were born in captivity. So how far and wide have you received animals from in the past? Some of them came from Romania, Liberia, Sudan, the Ivory Coast, Greece... And what about reproduction in these animals? You don't have that much land, so you obviously don't want them reproducing. Definitely, especially in captivity. We don't want any cubs born in captivity. Um, So what we did, all our male lions have vasectomies. It's a tiny little snip, uh, which means they still mate, but no cubs born in captivity. The reason why we don't castrate them completely is that um, the testosterone is responsible for the growth of the mane. So if you castrate them, the mane falls off. And our lionesses, we've put them on contraceptives. The uh, reason for that, why we put them on contraceptives, is that the wild lions on Shamwari will pick up their scent when they are in heat. So uh, if they are on the contraceptives, they don't come into season. 
and that keeps the peace uh, between the animals. Okay, so in order to understand more about how you're looking after the animals here, you're going to take me on a tour just to see a bit of the land. Hi, little boy. Hey, little boy. Good boy. So we've come round the back now, and Sinbad, the lion, is actually here now. Yeah, Sinbad was fed on a, mainly on a diet of pasta and deboned chicken. So his bone structure didn't develop properly, so he's half the size of a normal lion because he didn't get the proper diet from an early age and the lack of exercise. And uh, he's got no claws. Maybe when he started to scratch people, they pulled the claws out. And then he lost his canines too. But that was due to frustration while he was kept in that small cage. He was chewing on the metal bars. So basically the canines broke off. So they are the same length or height as the molars. Now, when the animals first come here, though, it must be, it's obviously going to be a change to them because they've been mistreated and things like that. So what do you have to do in order to introduce them to the sanctuary? At first, before we release them into the big enclosure that's 1.5 hectares, we keep them in a smaller enclosure, which we call a hospital camp. And uh, that's where they'll acclimatise to the new environment, get used to the electrical fence. They have to touch the fence to know or to respect the fence or otherwise they can run straight through it um, it's only electrified and it's got about 10,000 volts uh, kilovolts running through it so it, it won't hurt the animal but it just gives them a big shock but um, sometimes it can take them up to three weeks sometimes up to six weeks just to adapt to this environment here for some of the rescued animals for example like Sinbad that used to stay in a concrete um, cage for him it took longer to get used to this environment. He wasn't used to the thorns. He wasn't used to the soil. Uh, he had to get used to the bushes and everything. It's stuff that he never saw, vegetation that he never saw in his life. So uh, it took him about three months to get used to this environment. Yeah. Now, I can't stress how close to us um, this lion is. He's about... He's less than a metre away from us, but fair enough, there is a cage in between. But he's he's very well behaved. I mean, he's just kind of sitting here alongside us. Definitely. He's totally relaxed. As you can see, he's busy just um, grooming himself. But we must still treat him as a wild animal. Um, it's just this fence that's keeping us you know, fr away from him. Otherwise, if we did something silly, he could come through and uh, he could devour us. Okay, well, I won't be doing that. No. <laughs> We've now come round to where the leopard triplets are, and they're all, um, well, one of them over here, just about a metre again in front of us, is just sitting under a tree because it's very hot. Mm. Now, what's the story with these leopards, Gun? Well, these three came from Sudan, found by the soldiers at the age of two weeks um, in the desert. Now, I'm not sure what happened to the mama. She was probably looking for food or out on a hunt when the soldiers came across these leopards and picked them up and took them back to the army camp and they wanted to use them as watch cats, maybe watchdogs at the, at the camp. But this one in front of us that's sitting under this tree, his name is um, Elam, um, keeping cool, and here comes um, Sammy now, the dominant male. Um, hello, Sammy. He's ignoring you. Yeah, he's just walking up to his brother now. Very social. He's got um, a, like a large area just kind of hanging low from his belly. What's that? Now, you see, our cats, um, especially with the leopards, they've been completely neutered. And uh, once you do that, um, especially to the males, uh, you remove all the hormones. So uh, that's why they get a bit big. They are not as active as a wild lion or a leopard. Remember, in the wild, they would chase things. But here, it's a much easier life. And did they um, find it hard to adjust to being here? Well, I mean, they came here when they were about um, five, eight months old. Um, and because they had each other's company, 
probably it was much easier for them than the other rescued cats that came here. So Bornfree is doing a lot of good work here and looking after these animals. Are there any future developments for Bornfree? At this stage, we're busy developing another centre. Um, it's about 70 kilometres away from us. We call it the Gene Bird Centre. Bornfree is rescuing more um, cats, uh, leopards and lions, so we need another home for them. And with that centre, we can accommodate another 12 animals there now. I like to refer to what we're doing as compassionate conservation. So the Born Free Foundation rescues big cats from small cages and allows them to live out the rest of their lives with freedom to roam, the right diet and as much care and compassion as they need. That was Glenn Wiener, who also pointed out that many of their rescue animals were first reported to them by tourists. So should you see an animal in need, be sure to get in touch with the Born Free Foundation. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. This is a very special Naked Scientist show recorded here at the MTN Science Centre in Cape Town, where we're performing crisp packet fireworks to a sold-out house tonight. We developed the show for SciFest Africa, but there were some nerves before the first night. Miro caught up with Chris and I backstage. Okay, so it's one o'clock on the day of the first Naked Scientist show, and I'm here it's backstage. <laughs> I'm here backstage with be Ben joking. and Chris. Have we only got half an hour? We have 30 minutes to get everything ready before we go on stage. And we, how is everything? Well, we've practiced pretty much everything. We know what we're doing. We need to write down the order, but we do roughly know what we're doing. Everything's on the stage. Laptops are all set up. I think we should be okay. And now we've just got to hope some people turn up. Well, I've met a lot of school kids this morning that are all expecting great things. What's your reaction to that? Uh, Oops. (laughs) No, actually, I went to the talk before to see what the audience were going to be like, and it was absolutely packed house. This auditorium is massive. There's 900 seats out there, and uh, there's school kids in all of them. And they seem to be an enthusiastic audience, but at the same time, we've we've not done this show before. We've not done it as a three-parter with me, Dave and Ben. So this is going to be really interesting to see if we can A, remember what we're going to say, B, remember what we're going to do, and then what would I get to? (laughs) D, probably, uh, that they actually work, these experiments. So fingers crossed. We we nearly blew someone away in the foyer earlier when we were (laughs) doing a few test runs with our hydrogen. And this guy appeared wide-eyed. I thought we were about to give him a heart attack. And he said, that was very loud, especially the second detonation. Actually, I see here you've got your ear defenders on, Chris. Yeah, that's so I can't hear myself. (laughs) Well, Ben, you've got a nice running order on a clipboard there that should help things run a bit smoothly. It will once I've fully populated it. There's all sorts of different things that we're doing. We're doing lots of experiments with different themes. So it's a case of making sure that we know what the theme is at every time and we nicely go from one to the other because we want people to take a lot away from this. It's not just about bright lights and big, loud bangs. But there's quite a lot of stuff you can learn from at all, which is, of course, what we try and do all the time with things like kitchen science. But I better go and set a few things up on stage and uh, colour myself in because the very first thing I'm doing is standing in UV light with lots of highlighter pen all over my arms. And you shouldn't really be able to see the highlighter pen in normal light. But then as soon as we switch the UV on, I'll be glowing. So that should be quite a good start. That'll be a nice surprise. OK, good luck. Cheers. <laughs> The Chris Packet Fireworks Show features glowing chemicals, liquid nitrogen, a tornado of fire 
and exploding hydrogen balloons. With over 20 experiments packed into a one-hour show, it's fast-paced and keeps the audience on their toes. The grand finale features Chris pouring liquid nitrogen into a large bucket of hot, soapy water. This nitrogen boils and expands to around 600 times its liquid volume, creating an enormous amount of bubbles almost instantly. And this plume of bubbles nearly hits the ceiling and most definitely covers Chris. For the audience, this is a great way to finish. Okay, this is the end. We've only got one go of doing this, so let's hope we get it right. Thank you very much for listening. We've thoroughly enjoyed being here at Gregstown. Goodbye! <laughs> My name is Vincy Rader. And have you just come out of the Naked Scientist show? Yes, I have. And what did you think? It was a very good show. They did a lot of experiments. It was interesting, and I enjoyed it immensely. What was your favourite experiment? I think my favourite experiment was the last one. They had bubble bath, and then they put liquid nitrogen in the bubble bath, and it all foamed up. And Made a big mess? Yeah. So, Jeremy, did you just come out of the Naked Scientist show? Yes, it was very good. What was your favourite experiment that they did? Um, the one where they fried the pickle, or electrocuted the gherkin. Uh, it was like a homemade electric chair. What happened to the gherkin? It flamed up and went to orange colour. Has this made you want to go home and do, try out some experiments for yourself that are safe, of course? Yeah, it has. Hello, what's your name? Onela Jandra. And have you just come out of the Naked Scientist show? Yes, I just did. What did you think of it? Did you like it? Yes, I highly enjoyed the show. Did it make you like science more, or did you already like science anyway? I already had an enjoyment for science, but it more boosted my confidence in science. Okay, there were a lot of experiments in there, so what was your favourite experiment? My favourite had to be with the fluorescent highlighters, where they painted themselves and you could see them through the ultraviolet lighting. So what's your name? Zins. Did you just come out of the Naked Scientist show? Yes, I did. Did you enjoy it? I did very much. Has it made you like science more or did you like it anyway? I did like science before I got into the and I love it more. What was your favourite thing that they did today? When that blue balloon blew. <laughs> when that blue balloon blew and I liked that very much. That blue balloon was filled with a mixture of two parts hydrogen to one part oxygen, and when ignited, they react together with very loud explosive results. The audience certainly enjoy it, and it led to the SciFest organisers awarding us the Golden Earplugs Award, a prestigious award for the loudest act at the festival. Grahamstown is home to SciFest, Rhodes University, and also the Coelacanth, an incredible fish species that was thought to have become extinct 65 million years ago, but then showed its face on the east coast of South Africa in 1931. Since then, more have been spotted in the Indian Ocean, one of which is housed as a specimen at the South African Institute for Aquatic Biodiversity, or SIAB, here in Grahamstown. So I met up with SIAB director Paul Skelton to learn more about this seemingly indestructible species. Well, it was a, a chance encounter. It occurred in December 1938 for the first time. What happened there was uh, there was a South African trawler coming into harbour on the day before Christmas. When it came into harbour, the captain of the trawler contacted Marjorie Courtenay Latimer at the East London Museum 
and she came down to the harbour and uh, she went on deck and there was a pile of fish on deck and she shifted them about a little bit and then she said she saw this wonderful blue she had the first specimen of the living coelacanth to be found and reported she saw this lovely fish put in a taxi, took it back and then sent a letter down to J.L.B. Smith. J.L.B. Smith was, uh, he was a chemistry professor at Rhodes University, but a well-known ichthyologist. And uh, he recognised the sketch and thought it was a coelacanth, thought it was a coelacanth. He announced this to a disbelieving world at that time. Now, why was this finding so incredible? What was so special about this fish? First of all, it was uh, very special because coelacanths were known to ichthyologists, but they were only known as fossils, only in the, in the fossil record. And the latest or the most recent fossil uh, was about 70 million years old. So when this came up, there was a gap of 70 million years between the known fossil record and this living specimen. So a stunning Stunning because it is of a lineage of great interest to ichthyology. It's got unique features that no other fishes, living fishes at least, have. So this is a fish that would have been living at the time of the dinosaurs? Oh yes, oh yes. It goes right back to Devonian times, 400 before the dinosaurs. It's endured the ages of the dinosaurs and everything else. The lineage has survived. Not necessarily the species, but the lineage. What marks it as a unique species, this coelacanth? There are a number of very special features, and these are displayed in the specimen which we have dissected to show some of these features, and some of which are even obvious without dissection. So the fins, for example, uh, if you look at the structure of several of the fins, they are unique in having like a limb. That is very, very unusual. And in fact, the structures of those limbs are predecessors, in a way, to the tetrapod limb. They've got the bone structure of a tetrapod limb. So is this why it then has the nickname as forelegs? Oh, yes, yes. Without doubt, that gave it its famous nickname of old forelegs because it looks like they've got legs, not fins, as other fishes, yes. Now, this is a very large fish. I'd say this particular specimen is, what, over a metre, maybe a metre and a quarter long? yes. This is not the largest specimen uh, on record, but it is a full-grown adult. Yes, they get pretty big, up to around about two metres in length. So that's, that's the height of a man. And they, they get up to around about at least 100 kilograms in weight. So they are big fishes. With this particular specimen here, you've cut out a section to show its internal organs. Now, what's so special about the organs of this fish? Yes, yes. Amongst others, we show a notochord. That's that tube that you see exposed in the midsection there. Now, instead of a bony backbone like you or I have, this fish has a, a, a pneumatic tube. It's like a hosepipe, and it extends right from the head right to the tip of the tail. Now, that tail form is also very unique for these fishes. You won't find another fish with a tail like that. Now, what makes the coelacanth extra special is the fact that, as you say, it hasn't changed over time. Its form and its structure has remained fairly constant. Why do you think this is? If you look at the fossil record, there are fossil coelacanths that are almost identical in form to the modern-day coelacanth. So it hasn't changed structurally very much over time. Why not? Well, the pressure's 
to do so. Probably aren't there. In other words, it's probably maintained a lifestyle very similar to the one that we observe in the modern-day coelacanth for that long time. And therefore, uh, although other coelacanths were found in other habitats, for example in estuaries, the body form that requires quiet waters, it lives in caves, it manipulates and lives in small groups, all those features have probably uh, held over a long period of time. So where do you find this fish? Where does it live? We now know that uh, the coelacanth is widespread off the East African coast. They've also been found in Indonesia. About 10 years ago, uh, a single specimen was reported and then a subsequent specimen was actually collected. We suspect we don't know the full story of their distribution, but it's much more widespread than we believed at first. Now, what um, do you think the information that we know about this coelacanth and the fact that it existed so long ago can help us understand more about in science? Oh, there's lots they can tell you. Uh, It's a lineage of vertebrate diversity that is not represented anywhere else. So that particular lineage and the features of it, anything we learn and know about it is going to assist our understanding on life on Earth, obviously. There are many features, for example, even in the embryogenesis. Why have they retained a notochord? Those simple questions or or obvious questions uh, start allowing us to to ask some of the developmental and evolutionary questions on life on Earth. Some of their features are advanced. So behavioral studies, how do they survive? What, What do they feed on? What is the population dynamics? How do they communicate? If they're so widespread in the Western Indian Ocean and they're not given to being strong swimming forms, in other words, handling currents and that, how do they disperse? All these sort of uh, questions are going to assist us understanding life in the marine world, if nowhere else. That was Paul Skelton from the South African Institute for Aquatic Biodiversity, telling me the story of the coelacanth and how this unique species has survived in our oceans for millions of years without any major structural changes. Now, whilst the coelacanth was thought to be extinct and then found living happily in our ocean, the black rhino is still around today, but in very small numbers, and on the verge of becoming extinct. They've become a conservation priority after years of poaching and habitat loss, and are now very closely monitored. Jed Bird, a guide and researcher at Addo Elephant National Park, is monitoring not only the numbers of rhino left, but also studying their hormones, as he explained to Chris. Um on a sort of voluntary basis monitoring the black rhino population for the park. I've been doing so for the last four and a half years now. And recently, end of last year, we've started a a research project on on the rhino to try and find out a little bit more about them from a hormone point of view. We're situated in the Eastern Cape, 70 kilometres inland from Port Elizabeth, a very, very diverse area. Addo is probably one of the leaders in black rhino conservation. We sit now with over 70% of this particular subspecies of black rhino within the park. Tell us about the differences between black and white rhinos. Yeah, there's obviously nothing to do with colour. The one is no more black than the other one is white. When the, when the Dutch settlers landed in the Cape here, they named the white rhino the Veit Rhinoster. Veit meaning wide. Um, the white rhino is a grazer, so it's got that square lip for grazing. And then we interpreted that Veit as white and so forth, just called it the white rhino. And then later discovered that the second species, which then was called the, the black rhino. Because you had a white one, you called it black. Yeah, exactly, yeah, had to balance. The black rhino, however, is a lot smaller, about half the size of a white rhino, 
it's got a pointy lip as opposed to that square lip suitable for browsing they feed mainly on leaves and twigs and things like that what about numbers that's the drastic part white rhino numbers dropped to about 120 individuals in the tell but have through through great um, conservation efforts in the tell their numbers have been brought back there's about 15,000 now to date uh, whereas black rhino black rhino numbers dropped to about 2,000 animals and we're sitting now at about 4,700 so why are they threatened poaching basically poaching and habitat destruction and to give you an idea of how, how the numbers dropped if you look at the period between 1970 and 1992 Africa lost 96% of all its rhino to poaching it's seen as an aphrodisiac um, the rhino horn but the main the main problem and the main demand for it is in the Yemen tradition when boys go from sort of boyhood to manhood sort of a status symbol would be to have a dagger with the handles made of rhino horn I forget the exact dates, but it was a period of about 10 to 12 years. 22 and a half tons of rhino horn entered Yemen, which amounts to about 7,000 rhino that died as a result of that. And that only met 17% of the demand for rhino horn for these purposes. So what are you trying to do to stop this? I don't just mean stop the poaching, but stop the decline in this so we don't lose another species. The key now is to create habitat for them and the research we're doing is trying to understand a bit more about their, their breeding biology and trying to understand what are the most ideal situation and circumstances for this animal to breed in and try and boost their, their breeding numbers. What we're doing at the moment is busy validating the use of field kits, progesterone, androgen and corticosteroid field kits to study or to monitor those hormones. And how we do it is we extract it from the dung. So it's, it's non-invasive. We actually don't even need to see the animal what we do is we use camera traps and luckily rhino being like they are, they use particular spots to, to defecate. They use these scrapings that they, they often return to. So we'll put a camera up at these scrapings, the animal will return, do its business. We can then identify the animal, collect the dung and then run it. If it's a bull, we'll, we'll test its testosterone levels and its corticosteroid levels. If it's a female, we'll test the progesterone. We can tell if it's pregnant. We can see where the bull's testosterone levels are and how stressed the animal is. We're actually going to head out into the bush now to actually take a look at some of these sites and find out what it actually looks like on the ground. Right, um, we've just come out into into the park. We're in an area, it's one of the waterholes, main waterholes, used by quite a few animals or rhino in this area. We're lucky enough to stumble across some, some really fresh spoor here. If you have a look, you can see the typical three toes. That gives you an idea straight away what that is. This is black rhino. A, I know this because there's no white rhino in the in the Edo Park. But how you distinguish is that white rhino spoor would be a lot larger than this. And then at, at the heel or the back of the spoor here, white rhino have got a much bigger indentation. Okay, as you can see, the black rhino pretty flat there. Three, three toes, uh, about the size of your outstretched hand. If you if you put your hand across it, C can you get some indication as to the size of this animal from from the size of the footprint? Because with elephants, you can draw around the the whole footprint it gives you some indication as to how tall the animal is yeah there's a sort of rule of thumb if you put your hand across the spoor like this an adult animal will be slightly wider than your hand so you're looking at about 20 20 to 22 centimeters this is a sub-adult animal um, as you can see my hand fits quite easily over the spoor okay i do know there is a there is a young male moving around in this area he's five and a half years old so this you know i'm hazarding a guess this is more than likely this individual 
So would this be a good site to do the kind of monitoring exercises you're doing here in the park, setting up cameras to watch what the animals do? This this is a perfect site because, as I was saying, these these game paths that lead down to the waterhole um, obviously channel animals to this area, and then they'll follow these paths down to the to the waterhole. So if rhino come from here, they sort of congregate in this area and move down to the waterhole. So you can see this is a typical area where we would put a camera is where these paths cross or where they cross a road. That's typically a, a spot where these rhino would either urinate or hopefully defecate, and, and that's then when we would put up a camera trap. The animal would come past, do its business, hopefully we'll get a series of photographs, see the notches on its ears, be able to identify it, and then start analysing the data from there. What we do, let's just follow the spoor for a little bit and we'll see if we can come across any, any dung. Well, while we're out here in the bush, in the middle of nowhere, this is a wild animal park. Are, are there any predators around here that might see human as quite tasty? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say as tasty, but there, there are a few Predators. Speak for yourself, Jed, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a few predators out here. Um, there are, you know, lion in the park, uh, leopard, and then smaller smaller carnivores like caracal, um, small-spotted cat, things like that. There were some pretty big bones just we just seen there. What were they? Yeah, that was uh, the remains of an eland that was, I don't know what killed it, more than likely um, lion or hyena. They're the only predators that could bring down something that big. Okay. Have a look here. Here we go. This is... Look. Here we've got some, some rhino dung, um, which looks pretty much like any other large herbivore dung. But the secret lies here, if you break it open, black rhino, as I said, are browsers. They'll walk up to a bush, they pass a, a branch into their mouth with that prehensile lip of theirs. The way that their molars are aligned, they bite it off at a 45 degree angle. Okay, so if you're ever questioning what animal this could be, you simply just break the dung open. A, you'll see twigs that will eliminate white rhino. Because white rhino just eat grass, but then you could you could be sitting with a situation: is this elephant or is this black rhino? And then just simply look for this couple of twigs bitten off at 45 degree. That tells you straight away this is black rhino dung. It's pretty cunning that you can non-invasively go to the dung and, and measure these hormone levels. But what are they telling you? Why is that important? What we're doing here is we're comparing the three different sections of the park, or three of the, the three sections that have rhino in it which is the Addo section, the Nyati section, and the Darlington section. Okay, Now, these are pretty much the same population size in each section, but the variables differ from a case of elephant numbers, predation in the specific sections, and tourism numbers. The hypothesis is that with a higher stress level, they're not going to breed at an optimum level as they could. So we want to see basically what is the perfect scenario or perfect circumstances for these animals to live in realistically it would be great to put a rhino into an area and leave them no one gets to see them and they'll probably breed perfectly but in reality if you want to conserve these animals people want to see them people want to know a bit more about them we just want to know sort of what levels of impact these animals can take and what levels of impact from elephant point of view these animals can take because you you need people to come and see the animals sort of ecotourism because that brings revenue to the park it brings revenue to the region and that means that people then respect the animals because they have a commercial value other than just for poaching but at the same time you need to make sure the animals aren't being so stressed they're not going to breed exactly it's a fine line you know you've got to keep that that balance like everything but yeah you know, as long as these animals are getting seen and are getting you know more is getting known about them that's the way you're going to conserve them it's the way forward have you got any results yet, or are you still gathering the data and there's no trends emerged yet? No, we've gathered quite a lot of data. Uh, basically, what we can see now is when an animal is coming into estrus for the first time, we can tell when an animal is pregnant or 
when she's about to give birth because the progesterone levels drop prior to birth. We can then also see on bulls, particularly when they're most aggressive or when they've got the highest levels of testosterone, we found that the testosterone levels increase from birth to the age of about seven or eight years old and then plateau and then drop off at about 21 years old. What about the um, interaction with the viewing public, though? Have you got any handle on that yet and how the stress of, of having people and vehicles passing nearby affects the animals? Yeah, definitely. Just from monitoring them and seeing their movements, you can definitely see there's a trend in areas where there's, for argument's sake, in the outer section, there's, it's a public section, there's quite a, an intricate road network and there's a lot of vehicles driving around and you can definitely see the time of day that these animals are moving and the areas that these animals are moving, they do tend to avoid roads and avoid vehicles and people. Is it something they could get used to? Most definitely. You know, that's that's what I was getting at with this realistic side of things, is that you can't expect to put animals into an area that they never get seen, because realistically you have to monitor them anyway. And if they don't see people or vehicles for six months, a year, and then all of a sudden they do, their, their stress levels are going to rocket. Whereas if they get accustomed to it, to a certain degree, you know, a balanced degree, um, they won't get as stressed when they do hear a vehicle or when they do smell people. That was Jed Bird from Addo Elephant National Park explaining to Chris why it's so important to allow access to rhinos despite the temptation to lock them away for the good of the species. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. You're listening to a special edition of The Naked Scientists, bringing you the highlights from our trip to South Africa. In the UK, tuberculosis has been virtually wiped out. Childhood vaccination has seen an end to this once common disease, with reported cases few and far between. Sadly, this is not the case in Africa, where TB is still widespread. Valerie Caulfield from the University of Stellenbosch visited the festival armed with Mr. Coffet, a simple but effective way to demonstrate how TB can be easily spread by coughing. It's a rather mean, sneaky disease. It's a bug. It's a bacterium. TB likes to get inside the body. Body's a nice, warm, comfortable sort of place. Likes to hang out there. Doesn't really want to do any damage, but the trouble is, while it's hanging out there, it does cause some damage. And what damage does it do to your body? Well, because it needs to live. And if it's a nice, warm, comfortable place, it tends to divide and divide and make more of itself. And in doing that, it needs some food and it needs space. So it's gradually pushing itself around in the lungs, pushing lung tissue out of the way, actually making holes in the lungs. And and what bacteria is it that causes this? We're talking about a bacterium called Mycobacterium tuberculosis, MTB for short. What are the symptoms then once it kicks in? Coughing's the main thing. That's what people notice. If one's coughed for more than two weeks, one should actually go to a clinic and get tested for it. Of course, if it gets as far as coughing and spitting up blood, that's very bad news. At the same time, the patient will feel tired. They might have some chest pain, night sweats maybe loss of appetite, fever, any of those symptoms and those symptoms in combination. The coughing's the real one that will tell them there's something wrong. It's their lungs. And how do people catch it? They catch it mostly because other people who are infected cough. And when we cough, we spray out a tremendous amount of little droplets. We can't even see them. The reason I have this big face here, Mr. Coffett, he's a model. And when he coughs, he sprays this 
fine droplets of water out into the air. And if he was a person with TB and he had TB in his lungs, when he sprayed this liquid out into the air in a big cough, he'd also be spraying out lots of the MTB, the germ, and then other people may breathe that in, get into their lungs, settle down in their lungs and start growing. So can you show me Mr Coffit in action then? Yeah, there he goes. <coughs> nice sound effects there. So essentially Mr Coffit is actually um, a face mask with a, a water spray bottle attached under him. And this mist is going quite far actually. It's going about a, a metre away. Yes, and I believe that really the one's coughing goes further than that because our lungs are more powerful than this spray bottle. So a really powerful cough, one could be sending it two metres or more through the air. So people for a long way around could be infected as they're innocently going about their business. And how serious a disease is it? So how bad an effect can it have on your body? And also, is there a treatment for it? It depends on the person and how susceptible they are. One third of the people in the world have got MTB in their body. But usually it's been encapsulated. It's like in a little prison in their body. And it's sleeping. It's dormant, latent. It's not doing any harm. But sometimes a person may be down at that particular time. Their immune system not working so well. They could be depressed. They could be under stress. They could be malnourished. In South Africa, one of the problems is they may be co-infected with HIV. They may have AIDS, which will depress their immune system. And then under those circumstances, the MTB bug can get a hold quicker and get going quicker. It's not only found in the lungs, that's where we see the symptoms initially and that's where the first point of treatment is, but it can also spread so it can be a bone disease, it can go to the lining of, of, the, of the brain, it can affect the heart and it can be in the lymph nodes. Now when it's been diagnosed the treatment is antibiotics, it's a bacterium so it can be treated with antibiotics. But unlike other antibiotics, say for a sore throat, like strep throat, the TB bug lives for a long time in the body and it's very hard to get those antibiotics to get right in there. So the antibiotics have to be taken for six months. That's a long time. Yeah, that's a long time, and that's what causes one of the problems. Because the person will begin to feel better from the effects of the TB. Their breathing will be easier. They'll not have the night sweats. They may begin to get their appetite back, start eating, feel a lot better. They think, all right, it's gone. I'm not going to take my medication anymore. So how prevalent is it? In Europe, in uh, 19th century, it was quite a problem during the Industrial Revolution. Then with increasing uh, knowledge about the bug, antibiotics better sanitation, better living spaces, the disease was conquered. But right now it's spreading again, so it's actually a problem throughout the world. But there is actually a vaccination available to protect people against TB, isn't there? Yeah, there's BCG, and BCG is usually given to kids quite early on in their lives. But in places like South Africa, it's actually not working very well. It's a very old vaccination. Nothing new has been developed. And I think the biggest problem now is no new antibiotics have been developed, and the TB bug is acquiring a resistance. But how big a problem is it here in South Africa? Yeah, we've got a big problem in South Africa. There's a lack of understanding of what's going on with TB. People stop taking their medication. They stop taking it too early. There's still TB in their system, and those TB bugs may have acquired little changes. They're a type of mutant, and they then become resistant to the antibiotics. They become resistant to the first-line antibiotics. 
once they've got resistant to more than two antibiotics, they're called multi-drug resistance. And then a new lot of antibiotics have to be brought in. And then the trouble is now their multi-drug resistant TB may acquire another mutation which makes them extreme drug resistant TB. And presently there are no antibiotics that effectively kill XTB. So with drug-resistant TB on the rise, it's even more important to ensure it's identified quickly and treated appropriately. That was Valerie Caulfield from the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. You're listening to a special edition of the Naked Scientists, bringing you the highlights from our trip to South Africa. And finally for today, we have an explosive kitchen science featuring one of Dave's favourite science toys, liquid nitrogen. Here at SciFest Africa, Chris, Dave and I are doing an on-stage live science show called Crisp Packet Fireworks. Now, Dave and I have managed to find a bit of time between shows to sneak backstage and record a special kitchen science just for the SciFest Africa special. So, Dave, I can see you have a bucket full of your favourite toy. Care to tell everyone what it is? Here I have a bucket full of liquid nitrogen. 80% of the air is made up of nitrogen. This is what you get if you cool that air down to minus 196 degrees centigrade. In the same way that if you cool steam below 100 degrees Celsius, it condenses to form water. If you cool nitrogen below minus 196 degrees Celsius, it will condense to form liquid nitrogen. I can see that it looks like it's steaming away, but... Surely that sort of white steaminess coming off the top can't be nitrogen because, as you said, it's 80% of the air, and the air, to me, looks clear. No, it's not. Um, The nitrogen which is boiling off the liquid nitrogen is going to be very cold, and then that's mixing slowly with the air, which is here, maybe about 25 degrees centigrade, very humid, and this air then gets cooled down by the cold nitrogen, cold enough to condense water from the humid air, and so you form little droplets of water, which you can see. Now, I'm going to try cooling some air a little bit more than the air is being cooled to form these clouds by taking this balloon, which is full of air, air with slightly more carbon dioxide because I blew it up earlier, with the liquid nitrogen, and we're going to see what happens. Okay, so all we're doing is putting a long, thin balloon, not quite a modelling balloon, but you know the type, putting that into the liquid nitrogen, and we shall see what will happen. Right, well, it's hissing away. I'm guessing that's because the rubber's quite hot and it's making the nitrogen boil. That's right. The rubber is far above the boiling point of liquid nitrogen, so when it touches it, it's a bit like putting a red-hot poker into water. It's going to cause the nitrogen to boil. And so you hear the hissing noise. And also, the balloon is shrinking. It's getting a lot smaller. Yes, um, gases only take up space because their molecules are flying around and bashing into things. When they bash into things, they push out. So the less energy the gas molecules have got, the slower they're going, the less hard they bounce into things, and the less often they bounce into things, so they push less hard, so the balloon can shrink down much smaller. So the less energy some gas molecules have, the less volume they take up. Yeah, that's right, so the balloon gets smaller. So if we pull the balloon back out now... As it comes out, it very rapidly expands again. That's right. Um, But actually, if you look very closely at the bottom, you can see a little bit of liquid. Yes, it looks like some water has got into the balloon. There's just a little bit, about a teaspoon of liquid, rolling about in the bottom. Although, now that the balloon's fully expanded, it seems to have gone away again. Yes, because we cooled the air down so much, the air actually condensed, formed a liquid at the bottom. This liquid takes up far, far less volume than air as a gas. In fact, it shrinks by about a factor of 600 times. 
So that less than a teaspoon of liquid in the bottom there was more than enough when it expanded back into a gas to totally fill this balloon. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly how a steam engine works. If you heat up water above its boiling point, it turns into steam, it expands well over a thousand times, and you can use that expansion to push things around and do work. And we're using the same science to really very exciting, almost heart-stopping effect in our live show, aren't we, Dave? Yeah, that's right. We're doing a demo which is actually really quite dangerous. We've had to be very careful and build lots and lots of shielding because there are people quite close to it. What we're doing is we're taking a a small lemonade bottle, we're putting a fair amount of liquid nitrogen in the bottom of this lemonade bottle, I'm then going to put the lid on and run away very quickly. (laughs) So on stage we do have a lot of safety stuff set up. Obviously this is kitchen science, Dave. How are we going to do it? Well, we're going to use actually the best form of defence, and that's being a long way away from something dangerous. (laughs) Okay, well, in that case, I'm going to stay back from this, and you're going to pour some liquid nitrogen into a bottle, seal it, and then run over and join me. Yes, and I have to reiterate, if you get hold of any liquid nitrogen, don't do this at home. As you're about to hear, this is really not something you want to be doing without knowing exactly what you're doing. So while Dave goes off to pour some nitrogen into his bottle, I'll let you know that we do actually have safety goggles on and we have hearing protection, even though we're a good 40 foot away from where he's going to put that bottle. And he's just pouring some in. He's only putting, it looks like about two inches of nitrogen into the bottom of it. And he's just doing the lid up and he's put it upright in the sun (laughs) and he's run back to join us. So that's armed and potentially dangerous. How long do we have to wait? Well, what's happening now is heat is slowly getting into the bottle from the sun, from the surrounding air, and that's causing the nitrogen to heat up, that's causing it to boil, and because there's nowhere for this gas to go, it's slowly increasing the pressure inside the bottle, and that's going to keep on increasing until something gives. But it looks like the bottle has changed shape slightly, so I think the bottle itself must be stretching. Lemonade bottles are incredibly well-engineered things. In fact, I've been using a 500-milliliter bottle, and as the pressure builds up, it actually can stretch the plastic slightly, only up to a certain extent. And as you can see, the top of that bottle is now getting towards the size of a 2-litre lemonade bottle. But the bottom is its original size because it's being cooled by the liquid nitrogen, which makes it stiffer, so it can't actually stretch. I must admit, the tension is terrible. <laughs> This is the worst thing about this experiment. (laughs) That was very loud. It certainly made me jump. That really went off like a bomb. Yes, it pretty much did. There was no actual chemical explosion. All that happened was the pressure built up and up and up until eventually the bottle gave way. And because these lemonade bottles are so well engineered, they can stand pressures of 10, 12, 15 atmospheres. So eventually when it failed, there was a huge amount of gas under pressure, all in a small space, which wanted to become 10, 20, 30 times bigger. And it expanded very rapidly, shook the air, and that's what you hear as that huge explosion. Well, we're doing a very controlled version on stage and the Chris Packet Fireworks show so far has been going down extremely well. We're really, really pleased to have brought it here to SciFest Africa. We've also found loads of really cool kitchen science ideas, so look forward to more kitchen sciences from SciFest Africa in the coming weeks. Dave and Ben there thoroughly enjoying the opportunity to explode a drinks bottle using only the pressure created by boiling liquid nitrogen. You can find video footage and a full explanation on the web at thenakedscientist.com. That's all we have for this SciFest Africa special, and we've hardly scratched the surface of the great science going on here. 
Now, we're taking a break for Easter next week, but after that, we'll be back in the UK stripping down more science to its bare essentials. If you have any questions for us in the meantime, though, get them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com, and we'll be back very soon. The Naked Scientist podcast is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.